Are you familiar with the name Jonathan Edwards? He is one of those great heroes of the faith that you really ought to know. Edwards was a pastor, a pastor of a church in Massachusetts in the 18th century. And he's perhaps most popularly known for a sermon he preached in 1741. The title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Bet you're sorry you missed that one. Can't quite imagine Pastor Ken preaching a sermon with that title. But much more important than that one sermon, he was one of the key leaders in a major religious revival in the 18th century that we refer to today as the Great Awakening. But Edwards wasn't just a pastor. He wasn't just the leader of a great revival. He was a profound theologian, philosopher, intellectual. He had a wide range of interests and expertise. He was a person who we might describe today as a, a truly Renaissance man. A man who is acknowledged today as one of the most brilliant intellectuals that the U.S. has ever produced. He died relatively young, shortly after having accepted the role of president of the College of New Jersey. But you may be more familiar with that school by its contemporary name, Princeton University. A great Christian, a great intellectual, a man who was very serious, a man who was quite introspective, a man who was particularly concerned about living intentionally, living in a way that would please God. And to help him to do that, he formulated a series of resolutions. Resolutions that he committed himself to reading once a week to examine his life, to see how well he was keeping these things he had promised to do. The beginning of a new year is a time we traditionally associate with making resolutions, and so it occurred to me it might be profitable for us to work our way through Edward's resolutions this morning. Certainly, some of the things that he identifies would be very worthy goals for all of us to follow. His very first resolution begins like this. Resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure. That's certainly something that all of us can and indeed should aspire to. And I have no doubt that it would be spiritually enriching for us to work our way through Edward's resolutions this morning. But there are one or two difficulties in the way of doing that. The first of which is that there are 70 of them. And I thought that would leave me here probably alone about 2.30 this afternoon saying, and my 70th point is, and that didn't really appeal to me very much. The second problem is they're all expressed in rather abstract language. 
And some of us have difficulty making the transition between abstract thought and the nitty-gritty of daily life and how things actually work out in practice. For many of us, we find it easier to understand an example of generosity, for instance, than the idea of generosity. And so in view of that, I thought it might be helpful this morning to direct your attention to some stories that illustrate the concern that Edwards had for God's glory and his own good. Each of these illustrations that I'm going to use comes from the Gospel of Luke. And in each case, the example is an example of a woman who is a model of discipleship for all believers. Of the four Gospels, it is the Gospel of Luke that gives the greatest prominence to the role that women occupied in the ministry of Jesus. And one of the remarkable features of the way Luke presents women in his gospel is the number of times that they appear as the heroes of stories, as the central figures and the models for others to follow. And that's the case with the stories we're going to look at today. We've just finished the celebration of Christmas. And so it's very appropriate, I think, that the first example we look at is the example of Mary the mother of our Lord. The story is a very familiar one. It's the story of the appearance of the angel to Mary to announce to her that she would be the mother of the baby Jesus. And in this story, we see Mary as a model of submission. The story is found in the first chapter of Luke, verses 26 to 38. And here is what we read. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I 
and the Lord's servant, Mary answered, May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. The climax of this story is Mary's statement, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Gabriel had told her that Mary was going to have the privilege of being the mother of the Messiah. That she was the instrument that God had chosen to use through whom to bring into the world the Savior of the world. And he was going to do that through a miraculous conception. She was going to be a, bear a child even though she was still a virgin. Now, to be the mother of the Messiah was a great honor, an amazing privilege. So we might wonder whether that would be very difficult for her to accept, whether that would be very difficult to submit to. Isn't that something she'd be willing to embrace, in fact? But remember, Mary was a virgin, and she was going to have to inform Joseph that she was pregnant and he wasn't the father. How would he react? What would embracing this reality mean for Mary? Would it mean that Joseph would reject her? Would it mean that she would face the struggles of being a single parent, trying to raise Jesus on her own? What would it mean for her to submit to God's will in this matter. Mary could not know. If you watch the CBC film, The Nativity, that was aired just a little over a week ago, you may recall that they made a great deal of the difficulty that Joseph had in accepting what Mary told him. And that's hardly surprising, is it? Put yourself in his shoes. In the film, they suggested it wasn't until they actually got to Bethlehem that Joseph finally accepted this was indeed a supernatural conception. And not to be sure, the filmmakers exercised a good deal of artistic license in that regard. But the basic point that Joseph struggled with this issue is certainly accurate. And Mary couldn't know how he would decide. Would he continue with their marriage or not? And when she submitted the Lord's will, she was submitting to that uncertainty. But much more significant than the embarrassment of her early pregnancy was the reality that she was giving birth to a son who was going to die young and die a cruel death. And again, it's impossible for us to know how much Mary understood about that. But she certainly was warned about it at a very early point. Pastor Norb spoke to us about the dedication of the baby Jesus in the temple and the recognition of who Jesus was by a pious elderly man named Simeon. And when Simeon recognized that this baby was in fact the Messiah, he said this to Mary, 
This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your soul also. Right in the beginning, Simeon intimated that Jesus' coming was going to result in division and put people at odds with one another and it was going to stab Mary in the heart. And when Mary submitted to the Lord's will, when the angel announced the birth of Jesus, she was submitting herself for being that mother that stood at the foot of the cross and watched her son die in agony. A sword would pierce her heart. Like Mary, we are called to bow in humble submission before the Lord, to accept, to willingly embrace the role of servant. And none of us knows what that will entail. It can bring great joy. It can bring great fulfillment. For Mary, it was the honor of being the mother of the Messiah. But it can also be an obedience that is very costly. For some, it means not getting that advancement at work that they would like to receive, but because of their Christian principles, it's held back from them. For some, it means facing the hostility of family members who don't share their faith and are very unsympathetic and antagonistic towards them because of their faith. For some of our friends, it means spending Christmas far from family because they're serving the Lord overseas. And that's part of what that submission to God means for them. Mary is a model for all of us, a model of that humble, submissive spirit that God longs to see in all of his children. So Mary is our first model. The second story we're going to look at is the story of a woman who is not named. We don't know what her name was, but we're all very familiar with her actions because, again, this is a story that is well known. And this is a woman who was a model of gratitude. Model of gratitude. We read her story in Luke chapter 7. Let me read. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is teaching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. 
Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed women to, owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Luke does not tell us the name of this woman, but he does tell us that she was a sinner. It's often been suggested that the woman was Mary Magdalene. And that the sin of which she was guilty is that she was a prostitute. There is no basis in the biblical text for either of those suggestions. We are told only that she was a sinner. The nature of her sin is not revealed to us. She was a sinner, but she was a sinner who had experienced forgiveness, who had been pardoned for her sin and who now had a heart overflowing with gratitude. And that gratitude expressed itself in this extravagant act of weeping over Jesus' feet and anointing his feet with a very precious perfume. That was the way her gratitude came to expression. I actually read this passage from the new edition of the New International Version that's going to appear in print probably sometime in March of this year. In that version, verse 47 reads as follows, Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. And that translation brings out very forcefully the idea that the fact that her sins were forgiven was expressed and was demonstrated in this wonderful act of devotion as she anointed Jesus' feet. And that is probably the meaning that Luke intended us to take from this particular text. But the original version of the NIV, the one that is in print right now, has a somewhat different take on this. And in that version we read, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. And that translation suggests that she was forgiven 
because of her act of devotion. And now the translators have recognized that that really is a misconception. Her act of devotion was a result of her having been forgiven, not the cause for her being forgiven. She was forgiven, and therefore she expressed her love and gratitude to God through this act of devotion. So she anoints Jesus' feet as an act of gratitude for the fact that she has already received the blessing of forgiveness. One of the striking features of this particular narrative in Luke's gospel is a contrast that he draws between this pious woman and the Pharisee who was Jesus' host, the person in whose home this incident takes place. This man, whose name was Simon, was shocked by the behavior of the woman and was critical of Jesus for allowing this kind of thing to happen in his home. Didn't he know what kind of reputation this woman had, that she was a sinner? The idea that Jesus would tolerate someone expressing their love in this sort of way was simply beyond what this person could handle. And so he's very critical of Jesus. And so as he so often did, Jesus told a story. He told a parable of two men who had debts, both of whom were forgiven. One had a much larger debt, the other a smaller debt. And after telling the story, he turned to Simon and said, All right, Simon, which one will love the person who forgave his debt more? The one who was forgiven a great debt, the one who was forgiven a lesser debt. And somewhat grudgingly, I suspect, Simon replied, the person with the bigger debt canceled. How big is your debt? How much has God forgiven you? And how have you shown gratitude for all that he has done for you? This morning, we're going to gather around the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate communion together. This is a symbolic meal that reminds us of what our Lord has done to save us. It pictures for us the costliness of our salvation so that we will have a deeper appreciation of what God has done for us. His willingness to send his own son to die to be our savior. And the question the table poses to us is, and how have we shown our love and our gratitude to him for all that he has done for us? This unnamed woman is a model of gratitude for us to follow. The third story we're going to look at is a very familiar story, a short story, the story of Mary and Martha. And in this story, Mary is a model of contemplation. The story is recorded in Luke chapter 10. 
As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Often when this story is told, people rush to the defense of Martha. And perhaps that's not entirely surprising, particularly if you've ever been the person left in the kitchen doing the dishes while everyone else is in the living room enjoying a conversation together. But it's obvious in the story that Mary is the one that Jesus uses as a model. He is the one he holds up as an example to imitate. And the particular aspect of her behavior that he asks us to imitate is that she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, seeking to be taught, wanting to learn from what Jesus could teach him, teach her. Getting the dishes done is important, but it's not as important as sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's not as important as hearing his instruction. And Mary models for us an eagerness to learn from the Lord. Now, not all of us are contemplative by nature. Some of us are much more action-oriented than thought-oriented. We like to get things done. We like to be able to check things off on the agenda rather than to sit and to listen. And if you're like that, it may be more of a challenge to be contemplative. But all of us need to take time to sit at the feet of Jesus. If we're going to have a growing relationship with the Lord, this is a step that we can't omit. Jonathan Edwards recognized the importance of this, and one of his resolutions dealt with it specifically. Resolution number 28 was to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find plainly and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. To study the scriptures so thoroughly and to see himself growing in his knowledge of the scripture. This resolution reminds us that one of the key ways of sitting at the feet of Jesus, in fact, An indispensable way of sitting at the feet of Jesus is private Bible study. Simply reading the scriptures and meditate on them. But there are other ways to sit at the feet of Jesus. That's one of the reasons we gather together on a Sunday morning. To hear Pastor Ken or Pastor Norm expound the scriptures. To learn from Jesus. That's part of the reason we meet in small groups, to discuss together the teaching of Jesus and its implications for our own lives. And there are other ways, reading good Christian literature, meditating on hymns, Christian songs. There are various ways in which we can follow the example of Mary in a life of contemplation. 
So let's learn from Mary the learner, the one who was willing to be taught and make contemplation a part of our life. The fourth story, like the second one we looked at, is a story about a woman whose name is not given to us. But she is a woman who is held up as a model of generosity. Her story comes towards the end, the Gospel of Luke. It's found in what we call Passion Week, that last week before the crucifixion. And it's a rather brief story, but a very familiar one. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The person that Jesus calls on here as a model of generosity was not a person who made a large gift. Quite to the contrary. Her gift was very small. Only a couple of small coins. But for her, a huge sacrifice. The text says all she had to live on. The story is a wonderful illustration of generosity. The story that reminds us that God wants us to be people who enjoy giving and are not obsessed with getting. People who have a generous disposition, a generous spirit. But in addition to that, Jesus was making the very important point that God may not measure generosity the way you and I do. Generosity is not measured by the size of the gift, but by the size of the sacrifice. The amount that she had to contribute was small, but the gift she gave was big. It was all she had to live on. And down through the ages, many Christians who have been poor have found comfort in this image the picture of the widow's might, the reminder that God notices the small gifts, that Jesus held up as a model of generosity, someone who had very little to give, but who gave what she could. And that story reminds us that in God's eyes, the small gift may be much bigger than the large gift. As we reflect on this story, it's important to see something of the context in which it is placed. If we go back to the previous chapter, chapter 20, verses 45 to 47, we read this. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. 
immediately before he commends this poor widow for her generous gift, Jesus issues this stinging rebuke of the religious leaders. And one of his criticisms is that they devoured widows' houses. We don't know precisely what that refers to. What action were they involved in that could be described as devouring widows' houses? One suggestion is that these were people to whom the widows had entrusted their funds, and they were holding their funds in trust, but they were exploiting that opportunity that they had to access the inheritance of the widows and cheating them out of what was rightfully theirs. We don't know whether that's what was going on here or not. We do know that widows were among the most vulnerable people in that society, and they could easily be exploited. They could be taken advantage of, and that was happening in this case. These people who are religious leaders and who you would think ought to be the models that other people look up to and seek to pattern their lives after were actually guilty of exploitation. And so when Luke goes on to tell the story of the widow's might, he's drawing a contrast between these teachers of the law who exploited widows and this humble, poor widow. They were the people that you ought to be able to learn from, but they were the people who needed to be taught. And they were being taught by this poor widow who exhibited the kind of generosity that they lacked. She could teach them about generosity. And she can teach us as well. I don't know how you responded, but I thought it was very gratifying to see the way our congregation responded to the call for backpacks for the Mustard Seed Church before Christmas. I thought that was a wonderful demonstration of generosity, a wonderful demonstration of compassion for those who are less fortunate into our city, in our city. But we can't be content with a single gesture like that. Compared to most people in the world, all of us in this room are wealthy. God has blessed us materially. And we have a responsibility, a responsibility to be generous with the good things that God has given us and to follow the example of the poor widow that is mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. Several years ago, everyone was wearing bands on their wrists that had four initials, WWJD. Do you remember that fad that was very popular for quite a period of time? WWJD, what would Jesus do? And people wore those bands to remind themselves when they were facing a decision to ask the question, what would Jesus do in these circumstances? and to seek to model what they saw in Jesus' life, in Jesus' behavior. Perhaps as a New Year resolution for this year, we can modify that 
what would Jesus do, WWJD, to WWLLD. WWLLD, what would the ladies of Luke do? What would the ladies of Luke do? As we face decisions, let's follow their example of submission, of gratitude, of contemplation, and generosity. Amen.